Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with Hamish McKenzie, a New Zealand journalist. He's covered technology for such publications as Reuters and the South China Morning Post. He's here today with Insane Mode, how Elon Musk's Tesla sparked an electric revolution to end the age of oil. Then on Tech Nation Health, early efforts to detect Alzheimer's, well before any observable symptoms appear. And our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, tells us about the ability to control technology with voice and how it will significantly impact medicine. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. If you've been on airplanes lately, you know that the airline industry is going through a bit of a wireless and communications transition, which is understandable. The technology is changing all the time, and their services must as well. Not so long ago, it was an industry breakthrough to be able to show movies on long flights. You could just get one in from San Francisco to Chicago if they started it right away. Like kids at camp, there was a large screen in each cabin. And just before, flight attendants would go down the aisle distributing bulky headsets. Unlike today, where everyone pretty much brings their own. The airlines tinkered with the headsets were free. No, they're $4. No, what's your class of service? And even then, these were the days when you wouldn't use a credit card on board an airplane. There was only cash, and the bursar really was the bursar. Change was frequently asked for over the announcement system. But the truly unfortunate part of the technology? When the captain or attendants came on to make an announcement, the movie didn't stop playing, but the audio was preempted. I remember watching one Oscar contender when the pilot came on just as the critical scene was playing out. Passengers throughout the plane threw their arms up and loudly voiced some version of, What? They couldn't rewind, so that was that. The good news was that the pilot wasn't watching along with us, so he didn't know that this was not the time to tell us to look out the left side of the airplane. And then the large screen transitioned to individual screen, and now some airlines ask you to connect your tablet or phone to watch any of a big selection of video, be it movies or television, and you can even connect with the Internet at various price points, some of which are steep indeed. All of this stopped the rush to the restroom at the end of the movie, and something else, the constant pushing of the attendant call button. Passengers are engaged in all kinds of activities, from books, whether digital or on paper, to videos, to games, to you name it. Look down and there's an electric plug by your seat. We're all mesmerized by our personal technology until it doesn't work. I flew coast to coast on a fully packed plane recently that sat on the runway for an hour before taking off. Gate to gate, we were looking at about seven hours in our seats. And what happened? 
the wireless didn't work. And that meant no movies, no TV, no working on your email, no nothing. The person sitting beside me peeked between the seats to read the large text format of the person in front of us who had what looked to be a pretty racy novel on her big tablet. Just like the old days, we were suddenly getting free snacks. And while the attendants kept telling us that the Wi-Fi worked, we kept telling them that it didn't. Finally, the public announcement came on with an apology and the airline's website, where we could get a choice of reward for this horrible experience. It turned out we got our choice of $75 to be applied to a future flight or nearly 4,000 frequent flyer miles. Not a bad choice when you think about it, but you still have to feel for the flight attendants. They didn't have a second to themselves. I'm Moira again. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Hamish McKenzie, a New Zealand journalist who covered technology and unexpectedly went to work for Tesla. His book is Insane Mode, how Elon Musk's Tesla sparked an electric revolution to end the age of oil. Then on Tech Nation Health, efforts to detect Alzheimer's disease early, well before any observable symptoms appear. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about voice technology in medicine. In Hamish McKenzie's new book, Insane Mode, he writes about the emergent technologies which are changing our transportation landscape. There are many, many emergent technologies, not just the electric car. Well, at the moment in the auto industry, it's electrification converging with autonomous driving. And on the other part of Tesla's business, it's energy storage, using batteries to store power generated by wind and solar. And put together, those two things represent a massive technological shift and a potential reordering of the world's energy economy. And I think that's the big story here. While you didn't mention SpaceX and you didn't mention the Boring Company and whatever things we don't know about yet, (laughs) I think the clue here is in your subtitle. The end of the age of oil. All of those technologies come together to end, if you will, the great rise of the internal combustion engine. Yeah, the internal combustion engine is older than the phonograph. So I think it's about time it had its exit. Uh, We can't afford to burn fossil fuels anymore. We need to get off gasoline cars. The electric car is the start of this transition. 
Uh, what Elon Musk did with Tesla was show that this transition is possible. It's possible sooner than we thought it could be. And it started with these amazing electric cars that are more fun, more thrilling, and better to ride and drive than gasoline cars. So I think this is the beginning of a new era. He really had, as you describe it, a moral imperative here. Actually, in everything he does, he has this, this but not, it's not there just to create a company, not there just to, we're going to change the world. He has a moral imperative. Is that what was driving him with the electric car? I think so. He's said multiple times that the world needs to get off fossil fuels, uh, that electric cars are one of the ways that he can see we can do that. He's used that moral imperative in the construction of the mission for the company, that Tesla is there to accelerate the transition to sustainable transport first, and now it's to sustainable energy. Uh, and that's the way that he's been able to attract the best of the best people because they feel like they're passengers or co-pilots in this big uh, moral drive forward. You're not just buying a car. You're part of the team. Yeah, especially for the earliest adopters of Tesla. They're buying expensive cars that often had a lot of problems. They had to put up with some quality issues and some lacking infrastructure in the early days. And so for those people, it's they are buying into the mission as well. So here you were, a New Zealand journalist. You're writing for all kinds of people. And you find yourself covering the car, Tesla. How did you get from there to actually working for Tesla, becoming its, its lead writer. It's a crazy story for me. I, I was writing for a technology news site called Pando Daily. I was working out of my spare bedroom in Baltimore while my wife was at law school. I had written a few things about Tesla and wrote one thing about Elon Musk when he announced the Hyperloop, his plans for this high-speed vehicle in a vacuum tube that would take people theoretically from L.A. to San Francisco in 30 minutes. That's what I was say- saying. There's a lot he's got on. <laughs> There's a lot he's on. got on his plate. Yeah. Um, at that point, I wrote this piece saying that Elon Musk is more important to society than Steve Jobs ever was, which was a controversial statement <laughs> at that time. It kind of continues to be. Just because, <laughs> That's why I remember your name. <laughs> <laughs> just because he's operating on this different plane of purpose, and it comes down to that moral imperative again. And he, he doesn't just want to put a fantastic internet computer in our pockets at all time. He he wants to reconfigure the whole energy economy, the whole economic landscape that we live in. And so I wrote something saying basically that. And as a result of that, a, a publisher in the UK reached out to me and said, hey, do you think there'd be an interesting way to do a good book about Elon Musk? And I was sitting there kind of working in my boxes <laughs> in the spare bedroom in Baltimore, kind of just a nobody. And I thought, yeah, there would be a good way to do that. And I'd love to do that. So I said to this publisher, well, let me try and reach out to Elon and see if he'd be interested in cooperating on a project like that. And so I got in touch with Elon Musk's mother, who listed her email address on her website. You have to understand, this is what journalists do. (laughs) They don't call up the company. They go around. That's just a a side, sort of a house of cards aside to the audience. I assumed going through the company was like a (laughs) no-starter. I I hope you've learned something, audience. And I wanted to just get her advice about how to approach Elon about working on this project together. And the first thing she did was just forward my email directly to Elon, to my horror. And 
he got back in touch straight away because he had read some of my stuff at Pando Daily and said Not because his mother told him to. Not, well, I don't know the real story, but I, I, this is I, what they told I me. I respond to everybody my mother says to me. <laughs> yeah, I think he, he knows where the uh, which side of the uh, the bread has... Oh, I don't even know the same. Doesn't matter. It doesn't apply. <laughs> Apologies to all mothers everywhere. <laughs> but um, he contacted you back. So he reached out and immediately and said, let's set up a call because he had read some of my stuff and said he liked my work. I was pitching him on doing this book together. He said he was thinking about doing his own book, but would I be interested in coming to work for a place like Tesla? And after some back and forth, I eventually decided that even though I didn't want to leave journalism, that's kind of too crazy an opportunity to say no to. This is 2013, so Tesla was just Five starting to come ago. up on the radar. It's uh, really radar. coming on the radar. Yeah. yeah, and they'd just come out with the Model S, the first version of that vehicle. It was a winning awards everywhere. It was an incredible car, getting amazing reviews. And Highly affordable, $70,000. Only $70,000. <laughs> well, before you added on his features, it's really going to be a $100,000 car. And uh, he had these crazy ambitions for the company. He was talking about everyone driving free forever on sunlight because you could plug in your car at a Tesla supercharger that would be powered through solar energy. And I like Pretty much everyone else who eventually ends up working for Tesla was excited by this mission, excited by the vision, and excited by the opportunity to go work alongside this fascinating character. So I took it up. I think you owe your job to Steve Jobs. <laughs> I do. I do. If, if he hadn't paved the way with phones that could go everywhere with us and get us addicted. You had I to slightly <laughs> diss him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything that's happened in my life since uh, 2012 is because of Steve Jobs. There you go. Okay. I'm, I'm, uh, he's in the room. There's a couple of things that uh, I want to talk about. There's plenty in the book. Uh, one is you call the book Insane mode. I'd never heard about this before. Talk about insane mode. Actually, while I was at the company, Tesla came out with this all-wheel drive version of the Model S. They call it the, the dual motor Model S, which had a motor on the front and a motor on the back, which gave it great traction and excellent uh, for driving in snowy conditions, that sort of thing. But it also had a special feature that made the car accelerate from zero to 60 miles an hour Something like three seconds. Which is insane. Which is insane. <laughs> and if you experience that, it's like being on a roller coaster or a rocket ship. It, it, you lose control of your stomach <laughs> as you accelerate that quickly. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, Elon Musk, who has a thing for names and has a kind of endearing sense of humor, announced on stage as he introduced that car to the world that it would have this special acceleration feature and that mode would be called insane mode there was a, a lot of press on the, the dashboard yeah you could you could choose sport regular and insane and so for me that was a, a moment when tesla really captured this imagination of the public with, there were these videos showing the insane mode acceleration going around on youtube with the passengers who are unsuspecting kind of swearing their heads off in fright when they <laughs> took off at this, this great speed and but when I reflected on it, when it came time to write the book, I thought this is kind of the perfect metaphor for the company and the way it operates. It's kind of always in this rush to get things done. It's frantic in its pursuit of changing the world. And it is completely innovation-led to the point where sometimes it seems what they're doing and what Elon Musk is talking about is a little bit crazy. And It's ahead of the curve. We'll it's ahead of the curve, <laughs> yeah. So insane mode, and I use it in an endearing sense, is kind of a beautiful way, I think, to encapsulate both 
this time in history as the automotive industry transitions from gasoline to electric, but also the frantic and frenetic pace of Tesla as a company and how it operates. You compare Elon Musk to Thomas Edison. How does that uh, compare, and where might that be uh, problematic? Well, they're both great showmen. They both were great at telling the stories of their technologies. Thomas Edison took it to quite an extreme. He electrocuted an elephant in the street once to to, uh, uh, make a point about uh, AC induction. And uh, they both have similar workaholic styles. They both try many things and uh, some work out and some don't. And they both sort of capture the public imagination by having these huge ambitions. And actually, they, they both worked on electric cars Back at the turn of the century, uh, early 1900s, Thomas Edison had teamed up with Henry Ford to work on an electric car that they hoped to bring to the market. Uh, It was just at the time that Ford was uh, getting started with the Model T. Eventually, though, uh, Edison couldn't quite get the battery perfect. That was the part that he was responsible for. And Charles Kettering perfected the electric starter motor for a gasoline car so it didn't have to be cranked by hand anymore. And so the gasoline car at that point just proved to be a little bit more practical and Ford went off and made those and we entered this era of the internal combustion engine instead. Uh, but Edison and, and, and Musk, I think, have pretty similar personalities. Uh, you had a guest on one of your shows recently, the author of a book called Quirky. Uh, oh, yes. And, and, and uh, Elon and Thomas Edison were both subjects of this book. And uh, You're listening what- to my show and feeding it back. This is not good. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa Schilling, NYU professor, yes. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> well, one of the things that she talked about was this concept of self-efficacy, where, uh, which was the first time I heard about it, and now I get to sound smart by bringing it up. But they, these people with these driven personalities and highly intelligent just don't accept that because others have failed at this thing before that they won't be able to succeed. And so they push on through despite the odds, and try and get things done and have great success sometimes. And Thomas Edison had a lot of misses. Elon Musk has had some misses. But they, uh, with the things that have succeeded, have been able to make great strides forward. So I think in all those ways, they're similar. Um, To the question of problematic, um, maybe you can elaborate. (laughs) (laughs) We often say today that, well, yeah, if you're an engineer and you like building and inventing, you know, you'll start a company and that's just only possible today. Thomas Edison did that all the time. You know, that's, it's like, if you want to build, you can do it. Um, I don't see where it's problematic in the comparison, but I think it's problematic in the sense that it's probably pretty difficult to work for one of these guys. I think that's exactly right. They are, they are single-minded, uh, work extremely long hours, expect everyone else to do the same. And r- run very, very fast. They think, run very fast. Think fast. <laughs> yeah, they think, think fast. They demand high standards of everyone around them, very detail-oriented, very controlling as well. Uh, this is true of Edison and Musk. Musk has described himself not as a micromanager, but a nanomanager. And so, uh, you know, it's not a secret that uh, people who have worked for Elon have reported that he can be very difficult and very demanding at the same time as he can be uh, inspiring and visionary. And so 
it's it's kind of um, you get one with, with the other and you, you can't separate those two things. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Hamish McKenzie, a New Zealand journalist. He's written for Pando Daily, the South China Morning Post, and Reuters, among others. He's here today with Insane Mode, how Elon Musk's Tesla sparked an electric revolution to end the age of oil. You point out that Tesla is certainly by no means the only company working on electric cars. In fact, it's not just in the United States, it's globally. Paint that picture for us. That's right. Uh, Tesla has kind of raised the bar for what's possible with electric vehicles and excited a a band of followers uh, who now want to surpass Tesla. And uh, the auto industry as it exists has kind of been slow to make that transition and they're building their cars based on a competing technology, the internal combustion engine. So maybe it's to be expected. Putting themselves out of business. <laughs> eventually, eventually they're going to struggle. Volkswagen is an exception. They've, uh, the emission scandal that they had recently has forced them to do the right thing, which is to rethink from the ground up what their business is going to be for the next 20 years and to make sure that they are going to be building the cars of the future. So they're investing now $50 billion over the next five years to essentially transform themselves into an electric car company, which is exactly what they need to do to survive. But uh, outside of the United United States and Europe, in China, I think, is where we see this really exciting future bubbling up for electric transportation. There's a, a band of companies founded by internet technology entrepreneurs, billionaires, who have seen what Elon Musk has been able to do with Tesla and want to follow in his footsteps and do the same for China, which is the world's largest auto market, and not just leave those cars in China, but take them to the US as well and to Europe too. So I think they've got a great opportunity because they are almost starting from scratch in this electric revolution alongside Tesla, which has a small head start, and anyone else who jumps in. And China has a huge pollution problem. We don't realize that. Just so many cars on the highway. China is highly incentivized to do something about this, and the government is subsidizing electric the production of electric cars. By 2020, they're mandating that the average mile per gallon uh, miles per gallon for a fleet of uh, cars from a manufacturer must be at about 42 miles per gallon, which is you know a, a really good modern Honda Civic sort of level. So the average has to be that. And you can't do that unless you have a bunch of zero emission vehicles in your fleet. By 2025, I think that has to be around about 55 miles per gallon in China. And they give subsidies. You can get about $10,000 off the purchase of an electric car uh, in China. And really importantly, most people in China, when they buy a new car, have to go into a lottery to get a license plate. And you've got about a 0.1% chance of getting one in this lottery. However, wow. <laughs> if you live in Beijing, that's the number. i got to work that out with lotto here in California. Yes, go on. Yeah, I mean, it's lotto with a lame price. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in, if, you're, if you're buying an electric vehicle in China, you skip that lottery. You just get your license uh, straight away. And so there's a huge incentive to buy electric. Plus, there's a bunch of people in China who have never owned a car before because the economy has been developing. And uh, they don't have to unlearn how an internal combustion engine car works or they don't have this baked-in assumption that gasoline is going to be superior. 
that can just leapfrog straight to electric cars. Much as what, much like what happens in actually the internet era in China, many people never bothered to own a PC. They just went straight to mobile. And now China is a is a leader in the world, probably better than the US on many fronts with mobile internet technology. And we just did an interview with Ravi Agrawal uh, about India Connected, and it's a question of those people went right by the PCs and all that, right to smartphones. Yeah, you know, exactly. So you can catch up so quickly once you enter the market. You yeah. Know, and you have no no history. They don't have old PCs in their garage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you're putting a gasoline car side by side as an electric car today, uh, if they're about the same price and in China there are cheaper electric car options, then I don't know why you'd go with the gasoline option. We'll get cards and letters. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, please. <laughs> it's the United States. What can I tell you? What can I tell you? Right. Um, let's go back to Tesla, the company. There's lots in there. Um, and it's had its ups and downs. Uh, in fact, it almost, in fact, it almost went bankrupt uh, a number of times. That's right. And I think Tesla is kind of going to be like this for a while. In 2008, they almost went bankrupt. They're kind of weeks away. Um, Elon recently gave an interview to Axios on HBO saying that just this year with the production of the Model 3, which has been an incredible challenge and a ramp for them, uh, they were single digit weeks away from potentially going bankrupt. Uh, now that Tesla is so established, I don't think they seriously will uh, ever go bankrupt. I think they've got enough devotees and fans that someone will come and save them if, if it comes to that. However, they just reported uh, a profitable quarter, which was a big deal for them, and they're only their second one in their history. And, and Tesla has now said that it expects to be cash flow positive for every quarter going forward. Um, but they've got a lot of debt. That debt is rated really poorly. It's on the verge of junk status. Um, they're not out of the woods. It's it's a volatile company with huge ambitions, trying to do a hell of a lot with not that many people. And so I think um, it's just the wild ride is going to continue for a while. That they're not really firmly established just yet. I guess I have this idea that you know the accounting people called upstairs and said, "We just did the numbers three times, and you're not going to believe this. Uh, we're positive this quarter." You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it takes a little bit more work than that. <laughs> uh, we just kept adding it up. But, uh, well, you know, in Silicon Valley, we say, "Gee, you know, you can run out of money." That's what we're talking about right here: repeated running out of money experiences. Um, uh, where you just can't make the technology work. But the worst is when people or companies or whole industries don't want you to succeed. And that certainly has been the case with Tesla. And that answers big oil. That's right. If you were going to pick two industries to go up against when you're starting a new clean energy car company, automotive and oil are probably two of the most difficult, the most aggressive, the most deeply resourced. Um, and we're seeing a lot of resistance from the, well, from both industries, to be honest, but oil in particular. And uh, I think they see the writing on the wall that electric cars, as they become more popular, and the, the growth may be a little bit slowish right now, unless you live in San Francisco, you see Teslas everywhere. But it's about to hit an acceleration curve. And once that happens, then the demand for oil is going to go down. And I think we've seen companies like Shell saying the, the peak demand for oil may come as early as five years. And so they're interested in protecting their profits as they exist and try and preserve them for as long as they can, which is responsible behavior for a corporation which has 
shareholders, uh, but it has consequences. I've been speaking with Hamish McKenzie, the author of Insane Mode, how Elon Musk's Tesla sparked an electric revolution to end the age of oil. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, potential for early detection of Alzheimer's disease. And Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the use of voice technology in medicine. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with journalist and entrepreneur Hamish McKenzie. His book is Insane Mode, How Elon Musk's Tesla Sparked an Electric Revolution to End the Age of Oil. Automotive and oil are probably two of the most difficult, the most aggressive, the most deeply resourced. Um, and we're seeing a lot of resistance from the, well, from both industries, to be honest, but oil in particular and uh, I think they see the writing on the wall that electric cars, as they become more popular, and the, the growth may be a little bit slowish right now, unless you live in San Francisco, you see Teslas everywhere. But it's about to hit an acceleration curve. And once that happens, then the demand for oil is going to go down. And I think we've seen companies like Shell saying the, the peak demand for oil may come as early as five years. And so they're interested in protecting their profits as they exist and try and preserve them for as long as they can, which is responsible behavior for a corporation which has shareholders. Uh, but it has consequences. And you see things like the Koch brothers, two of the richest people who have ever existed, sitting atop uh, a fossil fuels empire that fund disinformation campaigns against clean energy and electric cars. And an example of this was a campaign they funded last year called Fueling U.S. Ford, which was ostensibly about promoting the, the benefits of fossil fuels, but was really about attacking electric cars. 
And so they put out videos and articles, for instance, that said uh, even uh, an electric car is not, sorry, that said things like electric cars are still worse for the environment than gasoline cars because they are often powered by electricity that is generated from coal. That's not actually true. There's a study by the Union of Concerned Scientists that shows that even when cars get their energy from the dirtiest coal states, they are still better for the environment. And this accounts for total production from making of the car to getting the energy to operating it. They're better for the environment than even the most efficient gasoline cars. And that story is getting better for them because coal is becoming an increasingly minor part of the electric grid mix in the United States and renewables are becoming an increasingly large part. So if you drive a Nissan Leaf, that is cleaner today than it was last year. And you can't ever say the same for a gasoline car. Well, by complete coincidence, I once moderated a panel at Stanford uh, for Stanford Engineering, uh, which had Elon Musk on it, but they also had Bosch. And they were working on a metallic paint for cards that would take the sun, any sun available, and put it into your put the energy into your battery. So every, certainly Elon knows about that. We know about that. <laughs> I was there when he heard it. <laughs> so I mean, there are many ways to generate. We're, we have parking lots. We're on these. We have these huge black parking lots with white lines on it, sopping up the heat. Don't you think we could get some heat from there? You know? Yeah. So we just have to talk about technology and its evolution and emergence. But these uh, these disinformation campaigns, which happen in many areas, yeah. are so, uh, once it gets into somebody's head, it's very hard to get out. Well, part of their goal is just to create doubt. They don't have to win the argument in any article or any video. They just have to get the headline and the thought out there so that anyone who's considering maybe buying an electric car just might have a second thought. And it's enough sort of gum in the works that it can slow the transition when really we need to be accelerating this transition. We need to get off fossil fuels, even if it hurts the profits of the Koch brothers. Now, you were a journalist, then you, you went to Tesla, you written this book, and now I hear you're an entrepreneur. You started something called Substack. What is that? Substack is a company I started with some friends who are great developers to help support independent writers. The idea is actually to provide an alternative model uh, for making money through writing. We think that online advertising is kind of the scourge of all evil when it comes to the, the destruction of media business models and how this has given rise to um, a, an economy based on capturing people's attention, in which case it's actually hard for journalists to compete with uh, shysters and um, scam artists because journalists are trying to tell truthful stories, whereas the scam artists will do anything they can to get their attention, get people's attention. And that might mean putting out fake news or sensationalism or just... Or all these ads everywhere. Peddling cheap rage, <laughs> yeah, because they can monetize through advertising that depends on getting lots of people's eyeballs. And in this world, Facebook and Google are the two kingmakers. And so this is a really unhealthy way for the media business and for society to exist. And we think that one way to change that is to put replace advertising with paid subscriptions. And so we have uh, struck on something very simple, and it's not meant to be complicated, 
It just makes it simple for a writer to start a paid email newsletter so they can get paid directly by their readers. And we've got a bunch of great writers using it. Uh, it's going really well, and we're feeling very optimistic about this future model. Welcome to Silicon Valley. You may never leave. Thank you. Yeah, I've been infected. <laughs> hey, Rich, thanks so much for joining us. Please come back see us again. Thanks. A great pleasure to be here. My guest today is Hamish McKenzie. His book is Insane Mode, How Elon Musk's Tesla Sparked an Electric Revolution to End the Age of Oil. It's published by Dutton. Substack can be found at substack.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, efforts to detect Alzheimer's disease early, well before any observable symptoms appear. And our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, tells us that the ability to control technology with our voice is impacting medicine. It's an unfortunate fact that Alzheimer's disease is well-established long before any outward symptoms appear. Is it possible that we might better identify those who are already on the path to Alzheimer's? Carlo Medici is the CEO of Alzeca. Moira, this is a very good question, and uh, I want to start with... Uh a piece of data which is uh, stunning in my opinion. Uh, $7.9 trillion is the potential cost savings for the U.S. population for early diagnosis of Alzheimer's. This is uh, from uh, the 2018 Facts and Figures Alzheimer's Association report. So we could save almost $8 trillion if we were able to detect Alzheimer's early. So how do we detect it if there are no symptoms? So today, nowadays, biomarkers, signals in the body that uh, show the changes in the brain are used instead of clinical symptoms. And uh, the signals or biomarkers are uh, many. And among them, there are two, uh, the uh, formation and accumulation of amyloid plaques and uh, the formation and accumulation of tau tangles. Plaques and tangles. Plaques amyloid plaques and tangles that are used to detect the pathophysiological changes in the brain that eventually lead to memory loss, confusion, what is called mild cognitive impairment or MCI, and then dementia, mild, moderate, and severe dementia. Is there any way we can detect those today? Yes. Amyloid plaques are detectable using a imaging modality called PET positron emission tomography. There are three uh, PET imaging tests approved by the FDA. And tau tangles are under development using the same modality PET. However, PET has some limitations. Uh, it is uh, not radiation-free. One PET scan is equivalent to 40, 70 chest X-rays, a massive amount of uh, radiation for patients exposed to it. PET is very expensive anywhere between four to $6,000 a scan. And PET is not available everywhere. Actually, it's available in tertiary care hospitals, academic centers, and PET is nowadays a rate-limiting factor in uh, enrolling patients in clinical trials because, again, it's not everywhere. So alternative modalities are being studied, among which MRI, 
magnetic resonance imaging is certainly very promising. And uh, Alzeca is developing an assay for amyloid detection using MRI. MRI has no radiation, zero. It's uh, less expensive, about one-fifth of uh, a PET scan, and it's much more available, widely available, compared to PET. In the U.S., there are approximately 10 MRI scans for one PET scan. But if you go to other countries that are not as developed as the U.S., or where MRI is not as widely used as in the U.S., that ratio goes much higher. It's 20 to 50 you know, MRI for one PET. In some countries, there is one or two PETs in the entire country. So you can imagine that this is going to be uh, very limiting. There are other issues with PET uh, that are more technical, uh, and uh, we should not forget that MRI is the modality of choice in imaging for neuro. So if you have oh, a suspicion for, for the brain. So if you have a suspicion of a tumor or a trauma, and it's used to rule out, you know, other causes of dementia today, it's not used to rule in, so to diagnose Alzheimer's, because uh, we need an imaging assay like the one Alzheimer's is developing that really binds specifically to the misfolded proteins, such as the amyloid plaques or the tau tangles. And this is what our company is uh, doing. We're in preclinical, and we hope to be in humans by the end of next year. Now, many people aren't familiar with the word assay, and what it means is that... It's a test. It's a test, but you have to inject something into the human. Yes. So uh, as opposed to a blood test, you know, where you get your blood drawn and then uh, you don't know what's going on, but somebody in the laboratory is testing your blood and seeing whether uh, there is like, you know, a glucose, what is the level of glucose... Uh, an imaging assay is really a like a drug that is injected in your body and it goes through the uh, blood system. And uh, then, you know, you go through an MRI scan, an MRI is performed, and then you can see with our test, you know, the amyloid plaques in the brain. So does it go into your brain? Does it, yes. cro- it crosses the blood-brain barrier? Well, it, it, it does two things. One, it goes through uh, a, a, the choroid plexus, and uh, which what? is part of <laughs> the, the huh? part of uh, you know <laughs> a, an entryway to the brain. Okay, okay? Uh, and it's carried by the cerebrospinal fluid or CSF into the brain. Uh-huh. And in Alzheimer's patients, it's known that the uh, blood-brain barrier is leaky. And so it goes through the blood-brain barrier too. So there are two ways uh, whereby our liquid, our test, you know, goes to the brain. And once it's in the brain, you know, there is a molecule that specifically binds, attaches to the amyloid plaques. And then when you do the MRI, it lights up. And so you're, you're seeing, the, seeing brain. the plaques because it got into the brain and it attaches. And basically sticks to the plaques. And then uh, when you do the MRI, you see it. You see the brain and you see lighting, lightening up, you know. Uh, and you see the, the leaky part because it got into the brain. Exactly. And all of that points to you're on your way, unfortunately. Well, it's amazing. To Alzheimer's. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, there is often the question, so what, when you see the amyloid plaques? Or the tau tangles. Well, recently there was a um, task force of uh, the National Institute on Imaging and the Alzheimer's Association 
that issued uh, a framework uh, whereby they classify these biomarkers, these signals, uh, into three categories. And basically, when you have the amyloid and the tau, this is an indication of uh, a likely progression to uh, the continuum of Alzheimer's disease, to, to dementia. And what, what is very fascinating is that, uh, you know, the use of biomarkers would allow this diagnosis to be done way before the clinical symptoms appear. Uh, and, uh, and then in the, in the presence of uh, so-called disease-modifying drugs that many pharmaceutical companies are developing, not one has been approved by the FDA yet, but there is, you know, I hope that in the next uh, few years there will be one or more drugs approved, then you could intervene early. You know, imagine a 45-year-old uh, patient with no symptoms but a family, of Alzheimer, uh, a family history of Alzheimer's. Uh, undergoing a relatively inexpensive no-radiation MRI, he or she has amyloid plaques, and he or she gets put on drug, maybe a low dose, and eventually doesn't develop Alzheimer's, doesn't develop dementia. Would that be amazing? In addition to which, our Alzheimer's drugs have been going after end-stage patients. We actually could pull them all back to see what do you do on early-stage patients. Well, Moira, that's a very, very good point. Uh, the research is focused more and more on early detection and early intervention because there is a mounting amount of scientific evidence that intervening late is too late. I mean, it's kind of intuitive, but there is also a body of research now showing that you got to intervene early in the preclinical stage or when uh, the memory loss and confusion is really mild beginning and then you can really change the course of the disease. So stop the accumulation of these proteins that eventually lead to the neurodegeneration cascade. Typically, people think that if it's a diagnostic, well, you can get this to market early because it's just a diagnostic. But because of the fact you inject your fluid, if you will, into the body, they're treating it as if it were a drug. Yes, the FDA, rightfully so, treats an imaging agent, which, as you pointed out, is injectable, so it's injected in the human body as a uh, drug for all intents and purposes. Actually, there is a division within the FDA called the imaging division that is part of CEDAR, which is the uh, uh, branch of the FDA that approves drugs. Uh, the only difference is that uh, you're not curing, so the hurdle to prove efficacy is lower. But you have to make sure that the drug is safe, no harm, and you have to go through all the phases one, two, and three of clinical development, and then you have to submit the so-called NDA, new drug application, and get approval by the FDA. And that takes anywhere between five to seven years. So where are you in the whole arc of this? We are uh, still early. We're in the preclinical stage, uh, and uh, we are going to submit the so-called IND, investigational new drug application to the FDA uh, sometime mid next year in order to be permitted to inject into humans. And after that, we start uh, the phase one uh, study, uh, which uh, we plan to begin uh, in quarter four of next year. So we'll inject into humans in quarter four of next year, and that will give us uh, a very early indication of safety on one hand and efficacy. I mean, it works in humans and it detects the amyloid plaques sometime in quarter one of uh, 2020. Well, Carlo, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you'll come back. Keep us updated. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Moira. Have a great, wonderful day. Carlo Medici is the CEO of Alzeca. More information is available at alzeca.com. That's A-L-Z-E-C-A, alzeca.com. So many of us now are speaking to our smartphones, our Alexas, and Google Homes and Echo Dots, you name it. I asked our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, has the ability to use voice made its way into the medical field? Well, voice as a interactive platform is absolutely exploding, and all the big tech players are competing from Amazon Alexa, now to Google Home. Uh, everybody's got a voice platform. And speaking of as a physician interested in the future of health and medicine, there are absolutely tremendous needs and use cases that health can use with voice. You know, one of the examples are, it. one example is the fact that the average provider, let's say doctor, needs to complete 20,000 forms a year. That's a lot of form filling what? out. <laughs> um, they often have four or more, you know, admins four, per provider. They're form fillers now. They're not doctors. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the challenge. We're filling out forms. We're typing notes on computers, electronic medical records, all are very sort of type and text heavy. Uh, that that leads to lots of mistakes. Administrative errors, by some accounts, are number, the th- number three or four leading cause of, of big challenges and problems and even deaths in hospitals. So voice, which now is our sort of primary way of communicating, it's easy, it, it doesn't take a lot of cognitive load, uh, is being unleashed. And it's being unleashed as you know, the primary interface for healthcare. And you know, there's several sort of interesting applications that you can think about. One is just Listening to our voice, the idea of voice is a biomarker. You can tell from my voice if I'm stressed, if I'm tired, if I'm drunk, if I have a cold. Uh, there are now several companies that have started to do analytics and apply machine learning and AI to listen to our voice and understand, is that the sound of someone who's depressed and talking slow or, or manic or excited or schizophrenic? Or are there changes in the voice that happen if someone's developing a disease like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or even changes in heart? Uh, disease can be picked up in, in voice. So that's one sort of element, not just the words, but the context and the tonalities. And then, of course, um, there's our ability to use voice as an interface, uh, not just to, to text a message, uh, but use that in a clinical environment. For example, a surgeon in the operating room might want to be hands-free uh, and not be getting unsterile or using a voice checklist to make a procedure easier or patients sitting in a hospital bed instead of trying to press that call button and talk to the little box um, can talk to the sort of AI digital assistant or patient or consumer before they even get to a hospital can use AI chatbots that are voice enabled to listen to their symptoms and decide whether they even need to go see a clinician. So there's a variety of, of applications, um, and some of them are going to become increasingly important, particularly you know, in the home environment. We can use voice to remind an older patient to take their medicines, even a younger patient. We could use it to listen for sounds of a fall and get them help. You know, They don't even need to say, Alexa, help, I've fallen, I can't get up. They may listen and hear that fall. Um, so what we're seeing today is hospital systems, pharma companies, uh, electronic medical record systems start to apply, apply voice as a platform in many interesting novel ways. If there's one thing you really need is when you're a mother or a parent or a caregiver and you need help right now and you've got both hands full, you've got, you're trying to deal with something and you're like, I don't know what to do. 
it seems to me you want to say, Alexa, what should I do? Is that even possible or is that just sort of made up out of, out of thin air? It's a perfect unmet need or pain point and it's already being approached and solved. So uh, one of my friends is John Brownstein. He's the head of innovation at Boston Children's Hospital, one of the leading innovators in the voice space. has a whole platform called voice.health. So go to voice.health to learn some more. And at Boston Children's, they've pioneered develop, developing apps, one called KidsMD that you can put on Alexa. And if you're a harried parent and you've got a screaming toddler with a fever, you can ask KidsMD, you know, how much Tylenol do I need to give? Or ask other basic pediatric health questions and you'll get some smart answers that can enhance care and and maybe de-stress the uh, child-parent relationship. And I think finally, you know, while you did mention stress, there are all manner of emotional states that you can have. Uh, is that really helpful to be able to sense that? Well, we know that, you know, mental health is such a, a burden and challenge. And if you can get early biomarkers to someone's change in their mental state, you could potentially do early intervention and prevention. Now we're talking on our phones all the time or to our you know, voice assistants, and they might learn Daniel's baseline or Moira's baseline. And, and you're talking on your phone and you're sounding agitated. It might give you or your, your loved one a little note saying, hey, Daniel, you seem like you're a little out of sorts today. Uh, maybe it's time to go do a meditation session um, or take a <laughs> and walk. And then when you smash the phone, you'll know that uh, it, it's true. I'm really out of sorts. <laughs> there's, a, there's a company in Israel called Beyond Verbal, and they've created this little app anyone can download um, which enables you to listen to your own emotional states in real time. And not just your emotional states. Are you afraid? Are you hiding something? So, you know, all these sorts of platforms may be useful diagnostically to pick up signs of depression or other mental health changes and enable someone to act early. Maybe that's taking a walk or changing your antidepressant. Uh, it may start to give us ways in ethically challenged ways. You're doing a, a Skype session and you're listening in on someone. Are they really telling the truth? Um, all the way to doing early prediction of significant diseases like Alzheimer's, where if voice as a biomarker can pick that up, it might lead to further diagnostics and enable a patient to take early prevention that might stave off that disease. And usually in the early stages, especially if you're living by yourself, you can do a lot of covering for some of the problems that you're having. Mm -hmm. And if that could be picked up uh, in your voice, you can get there. You can get solutions faster. The whole idea I think we've talked about on the show is to be more proactive and do that earlier rather than waiting for, you know, the stage three or stage four of disease to, to unleash. And as we're starting to, you know, privacy is important. So we're starting to measure voice in the real home setting. It's one thing if you're sending a text message or recording on a, on a Facebook platform, but if you're starting to listen to these sounds, we start to pick up what are the changes in voice or other sound elements that are happening in a home environment or a clinical environment and use that to give clues or guidance, we can be more personalized and proactive and preventative. And just like you can turn off the ringer on your phone from whatever time you want, 10 p.m. to 8 a.m., whatever it is, you can turn off the fact they're listening to you. <laughs> Privacy is not about just everybody else finding out what you do. It's like, I don't want it recorded. I don't want it analyzed. And privacy is certainly a critical issue. And, and we've seen society change, you know, with CCTVs, the, which initially people were very uncomfortable with. Now they're everywhere. We don't even notice them. So we're being visually recorded in almost every public setting. Um, so there's, there's positive and dark sides to any technology. One of the things that's getting interesting with voice is it's being blended with AI and machine learning. And one of the challenges that we've talked about in the clinical environment is we have to keep typing our notes 
and filling out forms. Now there are several startups where we're developing sort of automated transcription systems so they can listen to my interaction with a patient and start to write my note for me. And basically I might just sign off at the end. So several companies are building these sort of smart AI listening scribes that can help a, a nurse, a doctor, any kind of clinician to, to kind of have their notes written on the fly in the cloud. And voice is this great example of these exponential technologies coming together, you know, cloud, cheap sensors, mobile, big data AI, and the fact that it's globalizing. You know, when we heard the first iPhones in 2007, they were neat. They had a few apps, but when they really became valuable is when these sort of app stores, the app store, the iTunes store developed. And now, you know, there's tens of thousands of apps in healthcare alone. Now we're starting to see in voice that same element that even you and I, without any coding experience, can build a health app or any other kind of voice enabled app or skill that can democratize the sort of innovation around the planet. In fact, with us doing all these interviews over time, you know, I've got now 25 years of my voice and you've many years of your voice now. It's like people can study that voice over time. We can study it and we could create the sort of artificial Moira voice engine and you might not need to show up in the studio. You could- Well, they don't uh, need me anymore. <laughs> and, and many people, voice is endemic to our personality. It's our identity in many cases, even if you're not on the radio. Uh, and so certain patients lose their ability to talk, folks with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And now some of the work at Boston Children's and elsewhere are starting to build sort of a voice bank where if you're losing your voice, you could record it and bank it and then be able to communicate with your own voice instead of some computer synthesized robot engine. So this is an important kind of combination, uh, bringing people back their own individuality and humanity by being able to recreate their voices in a clinical setting with ALS or potentially to create our future podcasts and radio shows. I'm telling you, they won't need us, Mark Dana. <laughs> Everything's going absolutely. But it's, it's been so nice knowing you. <laughs> so thanks a lot, Daniel. Thanks, Marta. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancorn.